Are you enjoying our service today? Boy, what a great day. Isn't it a great day? The day we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. And I've got to tell you, we are pumped. We had a couple of services uh, yesterday here, actually six services with our campuses. And now we're into today, and we got a full house, and that's, that's just great to see. You know, for over a thousand years, pastors have been standing in front of Christians saying, he is risen, and they've been responding. He is risen indeed. And now it's our turn, right? Are you with me? He is risen. risen That's what I like to hear. That's right. Of course, you know, we understand that not everybody celebrates the resurrection. Because some people are skeptical of the resurrection. We totally get that. I mean, that's a natural response. Actually, it's what I want to talk about today. How many of you just, not not on the resurrection, you're, you're past that, but you just consider yourself kind of a skeptical person in general. Anybody? I mean, that's the way I am. Anybody else? Well, there's like four of us in here. Okay, that's great. Let's stick together. Let's hang. All right. You know, I mean, I'll watch the news, and, and I'm skeptical about the news. You know, I'll wonder, you know, well, why are they, what's that about? Why are they telling me that rather than something else? And when they're telling me that, why are they leaving out this other thing? And on and on and on. That's just how it works. Do you guys do that? So you are skeptical. All right, now we know, okay? So I finally got you there. Well, that's good. Well, here's what we've been doing. We've been, the last several months, been teaching through the book of John. The Gospel of John is a first century document that was written by one of Jesus' closest followers. And he was with Jesus throughout his entire three-year ministry, and then also was a witness to the crucifixion. He was there and watched it happen. Jesus even spoke to him from the cross, actually. And then he was also a witness to the resurrection. So we've been working through the whole book, and now we get to that point, which is John chapter 20, which is where we're going to be. We're going to pick it up in just a minute. But before we get there, if you haven't been here, I want to catch you up on kind of what's been happening in just a minute or so. So John's been talking about Jesus' ministry. He gathered his disciples. He started preaching to repent. The kingdom is at hand. And as people started flocking in, he was doing miracles. He was healing people, doing all this stuff that created quite a buzz. They weren't really called miracles in John. They were called signs because these miracles actually pointed to who Jesus really was. Signs that he's the Messiah. And then it comes down to a point in John where he records for us the last week before Jesus' death. They come to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is packed with people because they're celebrating the Passover. He comes in on a Sunday. We call that Palm Sunday, last Sunday. And he comes in, and the crowds are shouting. They've all heard about him. Many of them have heard his teaching. Many of them have seen his miracles. And so they're shouting as he comes in, Hosanna. They're shouting, basically, that Jesus is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting and shouting and shouting as Jesus comes in. 
to Jerusalem riding on a colt of a donkey. And then after he gets there, he goes up to the temple, and the temple is, is being abused by some of the religious leaders, and he clears out the temple of the, the money changers who are changing money for a profit, and also clears out all the animals that were being sold for sacrifices, again, marked up, and they were sort of abusing that place for profit. And then the religious leaders who were already not liking Jesus' ministry were in open opposition. They had been figuring out how they could kill him for some time now. But Jesus, that week, he's teaching in the open, in the temple, in front of everybody. And he's making enemies. But his teaching is not what people expected. And finally, he's betrayed by one of his own that he predicted would happen. He told his disciples the night of the betrayal it was going to happen and actually pointed out who would do it, and that's Judas. And then... On Thursday, he focuses in from a public ministry to just a ministry for his inner circle, the disciples. They celebrate Passover in the upper room. The, the, the week's festivals are not over yet. But after that night, they leave that room and they walk out of Jerusalem across the small Kidron ravine or valley and then up the slope out east of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives to a garden grove of uh, uh, an olive tree orchard, actually, is what it was. And there he spent his last remaining hours with his disciples. He was betrayed. That's where he was arrested. They took Jesus away. He appeared before uh, some of the religious leaders in the middle of the night. This was all Thursday to Friday. And it was, just, you know, an illegal trial. I mean, he's in the dead of night, not supposed to happen that way. Finally, they accuse him of blasphemy, which is what they've always said because he claimed to be God, and they turned them over to a man named Pilate who was governor. Pilate's a Roman, and, and he interrogates Jesus and, and finds him innocent, but history tells us he's in a precarious situation because he had lost favor with Rome and his position there as governor was weakened. And then he had all these religious leaders that were demanding that he kill this man, Jesus. What he decides to do, he was a, a brutal man. And actually, Rome had cautioned him about being so brutal and cruel. And so he, he's trying to walk this line, walk the fence. What he finally does is he has Jesus severely flogged, scourged, they called it with a short whip with several tentacles with bones and, and metal at the end of it that just ripped the flesh off of people's backs. Historians tell us that sometimes after a flogging, you could see people's internal organs from behind. He flogged him. That was after the, the soldiers put a crown of thorns, jammed down on his head. They, they blindfolded him, slapped him around, punched him, saying, who did it? Tell me who, if you're God. Pilate takes the bloodied and bruised Jesus and he presents him to the crowd thinking that maybe that would satisfy their bloodlust, but it doesn't. They start shouting, crucify, crucify, because he claims to be son of God. 
And that's exactly what Pilate did. At the end of John 19, we're told that once Jesus was crucified, that even though as the religious leaders that had made that happen, two religious leaders didn't agree with it. One was a rich name named Joseph of Arimathea, and he was a secret follower of Jesus, didn't want anyone to know, and he gathers up his courage, and he goes to Pilate. As a leader, he has access, and he asks for He asked Pilate for Jesus' dead body. At the same time, another religious leader named Nicodemus, who had actually came and talked to Jesus one time by night in John 3, he gathered up all the spices that were sort of customary for a Jewish burial, and they got all that stuff together, and these two men took Jesus down from the cross, but they were in a hurry because this is Friday afternoon, and at sundown, the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, began at sundown, and all work had to be completed, so they're rushing to get Jesus down from the cross, to get the spices with him, to wrap him in linen. They had a tomb. Joseph, who was a rich man, had a nearby tomb, an unfinished tomb that was cut into the limestone, and so they used his tomb to place Jesus Jesus in there, and then they rolled the stone to seal it. And here's the thing regarding the resurrection. You either believe it or you don't, but we want to just talk through to make sure you know what you're talking about. And so that's where we pick it up in John chapter 20. And we'll start with verse 1. Again, an eyewitness named John writes this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So why, why is Mary there? We find out that she goes there because she knows these two men on Friday afternoon sort of hastily buried Jesus And she goes there with a group of women. They're going to fix that. They're going to do it more properly because now the Sabbath is over, Saturday. It's now Sunday morning, and they can do that. But she finds the stones rolled away and the tomb's empty. Verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. This is how John commonly describes himself in his book. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And as you read this, these are regular guys, these disciples. I mean, here John, super humble, never says his name in his entire book. He, he names all the other disciples as they come up. But when it comes to himself, he'll just say the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, something like that. But as a typical guy, he lets us know that when he and Peter ran to the tomb, he smoked Peter. I mean, he just wiped Peter out. I mean, he wiped Peter off the mat. You know, so he's got to say that. And so he's faster than Peter, but he doesn't seem to be braver than Peter. Next verse, 6. So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there 
and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, why is John mentioning all these details? Because it's not what they expected. They go in there. Jesus is not there. Like Mary, they seem to think that somebody's stolen the body, but it doesn't make sense because all of Jesus' burial wrappings are still wound and laying exactly where they were, and then the wrapping for his face that historians think was to keep the jaw in place as a body decomposed, that was rolled up and laid off to a separate place. And they're looking at all that going, well, somebody took Jesus' body. Why go to all the trouble of unwrapping it? And then if you did that, why isn't it on a heap on the floor? Why then do you rewind all that and then take his naked body away? It doesn't make any sense. And then John says something profound about himself. He's still proud of the race, but he says something, something profound about himself. Verse 8. So the other disciple, that's John, who had first come to the tomb, he wants you to know that. You know, we, okay, John, we got it. Who came first to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. You see, when it comes to the resurrection, there are two basic responses, and the first response is skepticism. And I say first response because I think that's the normal, natural response that people have when they hear that somebody is risen from the dead. I'm just like, well, that, that's not normal. Says who? We get that. And if that's you, I understand. We're glad that you're here. And I want you to know Jesus' closest followers were skeptics of the resurrection at first. We know his enemies, they heard that Jesus said that he was going to rise again in three days. But even Jesus' closest followers, I mean, they heard that from Jesus. They didn't believe it. They were skeptics. But even Jesus' closest followers were skeptical about the resurrection. Think of Mary and the disciples. They're skeptical. Even though Jesus had told them many times that he would be killed and raised on the third day. He kept saying that. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. It just didn't make sense to them. Well, why, why would that happen? He said it after he fed the multitude. We read this all through John. After the feeding of the multitude, everybody's all signed up because, you know, I'm going to be rejected and killed and rise on the third day. After the transfiguration, he says, I'm going to be killed and I'll rise on the third day. On their way to Jerusalem, just a couple of weeks ago, he told them, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise on the third day. And now he's buried on Friday, nothing happens. And then Saturday, the Sabbath, comes and goes and nothing happens. But now it's Sunday morning. Now it's the third day. And where are the disciples? Well, they're actually hiding in a room in Jerusalem until Mary runs and gets them, until they're actually called to the tomb, they're hiding. And then what about Mary? Does she go to the tomb Sunday morning 
to expect. It's the third day. Where's the resurrection? No, she didn't go for that reason. She came to fix the sloppy job that the men did when they hastily buried Jesus. Ever know of a woman who fixed a messy job done by a couple of guys? That's what was happening there. But when she saw the empty tomb, I mean, she was the first one. You know, it could have been that she would think, whoa, 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 hold, hold. could it? I mean, he said, is this? No. She's just like, we got to recover his body. Somebody took it. Where is it? We've got to find it. That's her response. Even Jesus' enemies knew, he said, the third day. That's why there was a group of armed soldiers there at the tomb guarding it because they didn't believe the resurrection was going to happen, but they knew that, hey, somebody could steal his body and then claim that the resurrection happened. So the tomb was sealed, and it was guarded by, by soldiers. Neither the 11 remaining disciples nor the women followers expected his death or his resurrection. They loved him. They followed him. They sacrificed for him. But they didn't understand the most essential thing that he said about himself. It didn't fit their picture of the Messiah. And that, that's actually true today. That the life and death of Jesus didn't fit their picture. Let me tell some of you know that a few weeks ago I took a team from here and we went to Thailand. We actually support two orphanages in northern Thailand in the hill country. We were there to visit them. We also help res refugees from the Burmese civil war that's happening in Myanmar that crossed the border into Thailand. We're doing some stuff, but as I, that's not the story. The story is, as I'm coming back, I had gotten some gifts for my grandchildren. I have eight grandchildren, seven years old and down. And so for the girls, I got them these Thailand pants, if you ever, you know, just weird pants. Got those... But then I didn't get anything for my grandsons. I didn't think they'd like the Thailand pants. And now we were kind of keeping real busy, and it's time to leave, and I haven't got that. Now we're at the airport. I haven't got them gifts. And then so I'm searching the airport for something. I already checked my luggage. It's got to fit into my carry-on. You know, like, and I ended up with the worst gift you could ever get. I mean, it's just terrible. It was a little box about this big of tiny, tiny Legos to build a comic-looking Darth Vader, which they have never seen Star Wars, so they don't know what that is. It was just a terrible gift. Awful. You couldn't even manipulate. They're so small, you couldn't do anything with them. It was terrible. You know, what I was expecting, what I was picturing in mind is, you know, just Legos. That I didn't have room for regular Legos. But here's the thing about Legos. You buy a box of Legos, and you see this picture. And as a kid, you're like, whoa. That's not a box of Legos. You know, it is. But really, that's a Viking ship that I can make. You know, here it is. And you're, you're pumped about the Viking ship because it looks so cool on the pictures. But the problem is, you know, you open it up and you're, you're waiting for your ship. And, and, you know, what do you get? You get a bunch of junk and a huge instruction manual. Look. Listen to this thing. I, I mean, there's, it's like thick. You know, so you get all this stuff. It's like, what is all this? Where's my pirate ship? Where's that at? I want a ship. That's, that's the picture. This is just a, a big mess. 
That's how it was with the disciples when it came to Jesus. They're expecting the Messiah. They know he's the Messiah. They believe he's the Messiah. But what plays out in Jerusalem, I mean, the crowds were just shouting, he's the Messiah. And all of a sudden, he's being put to death as a criminal. It didn't make no sense. How could that happen? They've been with Jesus three years. He doesn't do anything wrong. And he's being crucified as a criminal? It doesn't make sense. They're shocked. They're shell-shocked. I mean, they're just hiding in a room. By the way, Jesus didn't fit the picture of the multitudes either. You know, they're crying out, he's the Messiah, because they're desperate for a political Messiah that will overthrow Rome so they can rule their own country. But when they see Jesus arrested and then mocked and beaten and spit on, they bail. They're done. Not the Messiah they're looking for. See, it doesn't do any good to have faith in the Jesus that you want him to be. We do this all the time today. Well, my Jesus wouldn't do this. Well, my Je- well, your Jesus is nothing unless he's the Jesus. That's the problem. It doesn't do us any good to have faith in the Jesus you'd like him to be. We must have faith in the Jesus he says he is the Savior of the world. Of course, Mary and the disciples, they're not the most well-known skeptics, but we'll get back to that. But, you know, today, people have a skeptical view of the resurrection. We get that, and we'll talk about how to get beyond that. But it's a natural response. But here's the problem. People say, you know, I'm skeptical that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I think maybe something else happened there. But I think he's a great moral teacher. We actually can't say that. We can't say Jesus is a good teacher, moralist, you know, anything. Because, and, and not think that he's God. Because Jesus doesn't give any room for us to say that. He didn't leave any room for that. Jesus claimed to be God. If that's a lie, he's not a good teacher. So we can't say that he's only a great teacher. He doesn't leave us that option. So the first response to the resurrection is skepticism. But there's a second response. And the second response can be belief. Because that's what we see happening. And how do skeptics, how do people go from skeptics to belief? How does that happen? Well, there's actually three ways that that happens. And and I want to just review those real fast. First of all, they consider the evidence. You know, they, they consider the evidence. Okay, well, what's the pros and cons here? What we know is Mary, actually, when, when she goes and gets a that Peter and John, they run to the tomb. We know that Mary actually followed them, and then they leave the tomb. Okay, Jesus is not here, we're out, and they end up going back to that place in Jerusalem, hiding again. Mary, though, she follows them, she stays, and she is the first witness of the resurrection. And then she goes to tell the disciples, and, and she 
But she had already told them, now she sees Jesus, but now Jesus will appear to the disciples as well. John 20, 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, still talking Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, I mean, here, they've seen the empty tomb on the third day, and what's their response to go back to the room, shut the doors, and lock them out of fear? Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. You see, here's what I'm telling you. Even the disciples needed evidence for the resurrection, just like we do too. And if you still need evidence, get the evidence. And I'll give you a little bit of evidence, but I could talk all day about the evidence. Because there's a lot of evidence. Some people say, well, maybe Jesus, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe he didn't die. Jesus was crucified by professional executioners who had done this hundreds of times, and then he was pierced through with a sword up through his ribcage into his heart to verify his death, and thousands of people watched as all that happened. That's the historical record. The tomb is sealed and guarded with armed guards. But after the resurrection, Jesus appeared personally to hundreds of people. And these people, he wasn't just a ghost. They grab on, grab on to his feet, hold on to his legs. They, they interact with him. They touch him. They hug him. They eat with him. All these things. Paul, who was a former skeptic and actually persecuted the church, he records many witnesses that, have seen, that had seen the resurrected Jesus, and he did that so people could follow up during the first century when he wrote and check with them. He also says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. And if that's not enough, remember, Jesus' followers even though they saw the empty tomb, they're completely transformed after they see the resurrected Jesus. They're emboldened. Within a month or so, thousands and thousands and thousands of people believe in Jerusalem who watched him crucified. And then we have this historical record that his followers were willing to die rather than to say it didn't happen. And that happened over and over and over and over again. And we all understand that some people die for bad things. Some people can die for the truth, but then it find, but it actually wasn't true. That was a lie. They just thought it was true. That can happen. We see that happening in history sometimes. But nobody dies for what they know is not the truth. These are the witnesses. These are the ones who know. And they are tortured to death to say it didn't happen, and they rather die than say the untruth that it did not happen. Historically, if you just want to look at world history, you have to account for the fact that in the first century, Tens of thousands of Jewish people 
who had been worshiping God on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, all of a sudden changed and started worshiping God on Sunday, even though they weren't told to do that because of the resurrection. What did that? And of course, many of you know, if you want a more personal evidence, you probably know somebody who can tell you that Jesus is real and Jesus changed their life. So consider the evidence. But by the way, who is the most skeptical of all the disciples? Who is that? Yeah, what'd they call him? Doubting Thomas. I mean, he gets a bad rap, right? I mean, they were all skeptics, but Thomas is the last one because he wasn't there when Jesus showed up the first time. So we'll pick it up in verse 24. But Thomas... One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I mean, he's hardcore skeptic, right? All of his friends, whom he tra- they're all saying, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him. He's like, I'm not buying it. Not that he's real flesh and bone. Not buying it. So how do people move from skeptics to believers? Well, three ways, just like Thomas did. They consider the evidence. We've already talked about that. For Thomas, he's going to see evidence. And then listen to the eyewitnesses. And for a week, the other disciples say, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him. He had eyewitnesses telling him what happened. And and here's, I think, what a lot of us think. We think, you know, if I had an eyewitness, that that would mean something to me. I mean, it'd be much easier for me. Here's the thing. We have the same eyewitnesses. It's just when Thomas was told by the eyewitnesses, they were still alive but they wrote down their testimony like John did so that we can read from the eyewitnesses to know that it happened. We have the eyewitnesses just like John does. Yeah, yeah, but they're not alive. Right. But everything we believe in, how much of history that you know to be true did you witness? Let's take the Revolutionary War. How many of you believe that the Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. We do have some skeptics here. (laughs) How many of you believe that there's a Declaration of Independence that was written a couple hundred years ago? Yeah. Did you see it? No. Why do you believe it? Because of eyewitnesses that were handed down, eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses, documents that we can read. That's why. The entire New Testament was written in the first century. We can prove that through archaeology. And really, this is part of why Jesus showed up to Thomas at all. Why did Jesus even bother to come back and appear to the disciples again just because Thomas was there? Because that's what's going to happen next. Well, he did that because he's qualifying these group of men. He spent three years teaching them And now he's going to send them out. 
But he, he doesn't want to just train them. He wants them all to be witnesses to the resurrection so they can tell us as eyewitnesses. And that's what happened. And we can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and see how well those witnesses stand up. So how do, how do skeptics believe? We consider the evidence, listen to eyewitnesses. Here's the last thing. We have to drop our conditions. You want to believe in the resurrection? You want to believe Jesus is God? You have to drop your conditions. That's what Thomas did. Verse 26 continues. After eight days, this is a week later. Remember, Thomas wasn't there. After eight days, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. It's happening again, a week later. Then he turns to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And don't be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. You see, we all tend to want to believe on our terms. Well, I would believe if. Well, if this, I would believe then. Or I would, if God does this, or if this happens, or if, if God saves my mom from death because she's, she's in the hospital. You know, then we always put it on our terms. And Jesus says it's only on his terms. Maybe this has happened to you. Sometimes I'll meet with people that aren't believers, and I do this quite a bit. And then, and a lot of times, they're looking for evidence, and we talk about the evidence. We can talk about the evidence hours and hours. I've had people where I've met for month, weekly for months just talking about evidence. And then when they start to flip, like they realize, wow, I don't have any I don't have any reason not to believe this. All my questions have been answered. Then they'll come down to this. They'll switch tactics. They'll, they'll kind of do this. And it's something on their heart. They'll say, "If because they're thinking, I think this is true. And they'll say this. And maybe you've heard it too. If I become a Christian, will I have to give up and then fill in the blank? Anybody hear somebody say that? If I, it happens all the time, if I become a Christian, will I have to give up and then just fill in the blank of something that they think doesn't square with Christianity? You know, for example, it might be, and there's hundreds of these, but, you know, if I become a Christian, will I have to start, stop living with my girlfriend? And the answer is no and yes. No, we don't have to do anything to come to Christ, he accepts us the way we are. He, he welcomes us the way we are. And as a matter of fact, we can't even become a Christian unless we know we have messed up and we've got issues and we've done wrong. We can't even become a believer unless we know that. So no. But then I'll say, but to be honest, so I can just be straight up with you, once you become a believer, you'll want to change those things. You'll want to start living the way God wants you to live. You'll want to get married. You'll want to do whatever God says. 
And it won't be that you'll be doing it so begrudgingly. You'll be changed from the inside out over time. It doesn't happen in a day. But over time, you'll be changed. And then you'll be like, I want to follow Jesus in these things. And you won't hate it. You'll want to, to change. And that's what people don't understand. You've got to drop your conditions. By all accounts, we have several eyewitnesses writing for us in the first century that were there. Did Thomas ever put his hand in Jesus' side? By all accounts, no, he didn't do it. I mean, Jesus is like, Thomas, come here. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas is like, my Lord and my God. A Jewish man, all these disciples were Jewish. The last people on earth would say that a man could be God. Romans had plenty of gods. They could believe anything. Jewish people, one God, and now they came to believe. One God and three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. No higher confession of faith, my Lord and my God. So the first response is skepticism, and we get it. And for many, the second response is belief. And the question is, what's your response? You know, I was talking about this yesterday. We had some services. And uh, if you don't think that the resurrection happened, then you have to figure out what did happen. Because resurrection, the empty tomb changed the world. And here, here's, here's the thing that I was thinking about last night. I feel like my sermon's missing a little bit. Of course, most of us are not skeptics here because we're celebrating the resurrection. But some people have been invited. And, and you don't know about the resurrection. You're no expert and you're a little skeptical as we would expect you to be. We get it. We were there too, most of us. But there's another category. And this other category is people, you know, they just grew up and they've been hearing all their life Jesus rose from the dead. So it's not that they don't believe that. They're okay with that. You know, they're not, they wouldn't go out proclaiming it, but they're not skeptics. This may be, you know, a way bigger crowd than skeptics. They sort of believe that the resurrection did happen. Maybe that's you. But here's the thing. You just don't really care. It doesn't mean anything to you. Has it changed your life? And if that's true of you, Jesus is telling us, and his followers are telling us, that you will die in your sins and be separated from God forever, the God that you were okay with, because you didn't come to him on his terms, the way he said to come. The empty tomb changed the disciples' lives. They all willingly died for their faith. Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus, we know from Scripture, he committed suicide. Of the other 11 disciples, all of them but one died for their faith. They died because they would not recant their testimony, except for John, the guy who wrote this. He was the last remaining disciple. He was sentenced to death, but they did it a different way because some of the other disciples were crucified and different things. But for him, they sentenced him to be boiled to death in a pot of boiling water or, or boiling oil, but somehow he survived it. And so they had already carried out the death sentence. Whoops, didn't die. And so they exiled him to an island called Patmos. All the disciples willing to die for their faith. 
But it didn't just change the disciples' lives. The empty tomb caused early Christians to change the world. And we can see that in world history. You have to account for that some way. In world history, we see how all of a sudden in the first century, women are elevated to equal status of men. Never happened before in history. Female babies who were routinely left out to die in the Roman world were scooped up and raised by Christians, saving their lives. When plagues hit cities in Europe and all the people fled, Christians went into the cities to help the people who were suffering and dying. And by the way, we don't know this primarily from Christian witnesses. We know this by letters that enemies of Christians wrote going, these people are weird. They keep getting a bigger following. When there's a plague, they don't run away. They go in. How do we stomp these people out? Hospitals started by Christians. First hospitals were run by Christians because they wanted to help suffering people. And then virtues like humility, compassion, personal responsibility, loving your enemies. Virtues that were always looked down upon in the Roman world. All of a sudden they're elevated and lived out starting in the first century. The empty tomb changed the disciples. It changed early Christians. But the empty tomb's got to change your life too. If you believe the tomb's empty because of the resurrection, it'll change your life. We could back up one step and say, well, why is the tomb empty? Well, because he's God. Yeah, but let's back up another step. Why did God have to die? Well, Jesus told us that. Jesus had to die. You see, we all have a sense of right and wrong, that some things are right and some things are wrong. That may differ between different people. But you hurt an innocent person, especially a child, everybody knows that's wrong. And it's not just that. We know that wrong ought to be punished. That's the right thing. It's the just thing. And so God is telling us that he is a righteous judge and justice is coming and wrongs will be punished. And here's the bad news. We have all sinned against God. Paul, that I mentioned before, writes, as it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. None of us as human beings are righteous and if we're not righteous, if we're sinful, we should be punished. He also writes in 6.23 in Romans, For the wages of sin, the results of sin, what you should get for sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Punishment for our sin, my sin, what I deserve, me, is eternal separation from God in hell. And being a preacher doesn't fix that. Or doing good deeds doesn't fix that. Good deeds don't remove one sin from our account. But Jesus died to pay our penalty for sin. But that only counts for us if on his terms we have to turn to him in belief. Not just belief that he existed, maybe he rose from the dead. Belief in that we trust in Jesus, that he paid for our sins. He is our only hope to be made right 
with a righteous, living, holy God. He's the only way we can be right with God. And then what Jesus said to Thomas in response that John recorded for us was this. Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said to him in verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see yet believe. That's Jesus talking about us if you're a believer. You saw me, but blessed are they who who didn't get to see but heard. And then John ends this chapter with two verses, and this will wrap it up, explaining why he wrote his whole book. Here it is. Verse 30, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He said, I couldn't write it all down. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what God's telling us. Through John, his disciple. And so if today you're moving from skeptic to belief, or if you're moving from, yeah, I sort of believe this, but I've never really cared much. It wasn't enough to cause me to follow God. That's not enough belief. And so if you're either moving from skeptic to belief or from, yeah, you believe that Jesus did all these things, that Jesus is God, but you don't believe in him, you don't trust him for your salvation in the only way that you could be made right, then I invite you to come to God, turn to God today. And I will help you with that because if you're believing that's what it means to be a believer. But, but no, Jesus will come in and change your life. And if you think you've become a believer, but nothing's ever changed in your life, and it's been you know, months and years, that's not it. And so here's, here's a prayer. If we bow our heads, if you're believing in, if you're trusting in Christ for the first time today, make this prayer your prayer. You don't have to say it out loud if you don't want to. This can be private, just you and God. He knows your every thought. Just, just verbalize these things silently to God. Here it goes. Father God in heaven, I admit that I have sinned against you like everybody else. And I know that I should be punished for my sin And I'm realizing that punishment is way worse than I thought. It's separation from you forever in a place called hell. But Father, I also understand that you love me, me. You love me. And that you offered me this free gift of salvation. I can't work for it. I can't earn it. It's a gift. And so, Father, right now, I am putting my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation, not in church, not in religious rituals, not in good deeds, not in the, my neighbors think I'm great. I'm putting all my trust for my salvation in you. And salvation from what? Salvation from my just, right, correct penalty for the sin that I've done. Lord, save me. Come into my life through your spirit and help me to follow you. In Christ's name.